sometimes struggle to get up in the morning or wind down for bed at night. I used to find it so difficult. I woke up with no sense of positivity and brightness. I was void of motivation and spirit. This changed completely when I started waking up with a Lumi body clock. These incredible devices mimic the light and colour of a real sunrise and sunset, transforming the experience of waking up and going to sleep completely. Rather than being suddenly woken up with an alarm clock, the Lumi body clock will wake you up gradually with a natural sunrise. The Lumi body clock has been shown to improve the quality of sleep and awakening and to boost mood and productivity in clinical trials. You can personalise your sunrise and sunset from 15 to 90 minutes with their clinically tested unique natural light and more than 20 sleep and wake sounds. We all deserve to sleep well and to wake up feeling fresh. So if you're finding this a challenge and you want to try a new approach, go to lumi.com. Well, Clive, thank you very much for joining us on the Greatest Music of All Time podcast. I can say that it is a true honour to be talking to you because you provided the soundtrack to my life and I mean, countless lives, everybody's lives. So firstly, a huge thank you because I know that you're very busy. Um, I, I wanted to start off by asking you, you know, before your incredible career, which has been over several decades, what was the first thing that got you into music? Because we, we were just watching your Netflix documentary again, and it seems so sudden the way that you were thrust into um, Columbia um, and, and the music industry in general. Um, did, did you grow up on music? Firstly, the Netflix documentary uh, is totally accurate. It was sudden. It was unexpected. I was a lawyer. I was the lawyer for Columbia Records. And all of a sudden, my boss, so to speak, was being made a group president. And he first offered me to become head of the musical instrument division, which had Steinway piano and Leslie speakers and Fender guitars, but I didn't want to move to California. So he said, okay, then I'm going to make you head of Columbia Records. No notice, no discussion. Uh, of course, I worked with him as his lawyer for, I think it was about five years, but it never occurred to me that I would be in music itself. I was happy to be the lawyer for the A&R people, the marketing, the sales, the promotions, but um, it was totally sudden. So now you're asking me, is there anything in my past? No, I grew up as a normal radio, in quotes, listener uh, to the top songs of the day. So I knew the hit records, but as distinguished from some of my friends that really collected records and really it was their hobby, um, I liked music, but it was no more than normal, quote, normal, unquote. So that uh, my discovery later in life that I had a natural ear, I never would have known it, never, ever. And the only way that I knew it was that after I made singular decisions for auto signings, um, they all came through. Yeah. And not just signings. I mean, literally songs and production. Well, that was even later. That was even later with when I founded Arista. So oh, I yeah, took over Columbia in 1965. I founded Arista in 74. Um, but almost all my signings at Columbia Records were self-contained rock artists uh, mm -hmm. who wrote their own material, so I was not looking to find songs. You weren't a &R uh, and I did so some of it for Streisand. I, I felt that uh, she should meet or record some of the newer composers because she was doing so much of Hollywood uh, composers. So I was the one that brought it to Laura Nero and Stony End and uh, had her record uh, some contemporary material. But as far as finding a hit song, I had not done that. 
when I was at Columbia. Columbia. I only did it when I started Arista and I was hungry for a major company and this was a brand new company, okay? And if I were dependent on music had changed, new wave had come in, punk rock had come in, and those artists that I was interested in for the first few years, like Patti Smith or Lou Reed or Graham Barker, they were the critics' favorite, and they were brilliant, but you couldn't depend on them going multi-platinum. That was not in the cards. So the only way that you could go multi-platinum is if you had hit records. And I began Arrested by coming up with the song Mandy, gave it to Barry Manilow. We had a number one record and um, started selling platinum albums. Yeah, because that song started its life as Brandy, right? Well, it came to me as Brandy. But when I was at Columbia and head of Colombian Epic, I, I had a record, Brandy, or a fine one by the group Looking Glass. And so I knew we couldn't, it was a big no. hit. So I couldn't call a record Brandy because we had just, I had just had a hit with a record called Brandy. Yeah, and that record so still I played on the radio. So I to Mandy. And it's, uh, it's, fa it's fabulous. Both records are incredible. Uh, I wanted to ask about what your, t your time at Columbia. It seems like, I mean, how pivotal was the Monterey Pop Festival in kind of, y y you know, your career at Columbia or your appreciation of music? The Monterey Pop Festival changed my life forever. I had no knowledge going there that uh, it would change my life. I just thought I was going to go with my wife at the time and enjoy Simon and Garfunkel and the Mamas and Papas. Um, I didn't know there'd be new artists there. I didn't know there was a revolution going on at Haight-Ashbury, uh, that there was a revolution in effect in music. It's not that I didn't know it. Um, it began at Haight-Ashbury. The groups, the Electric Flag, others, the English groups, they were now into... Uh, amplified guitars and uh, music had changed. So I come to Monterey, it was a music revolution, it was a social revolution, it was a cultural revolution. And since I was pretty singular as a recording executive there and had seen Chandis Joplin I knew in my bones that Janis Joplin would be an important new artist. And it was up to me. I was head of the company. Should I sign? I never thought I would sign an artist, okay? But I did. She was under contract to a small record company, never having a record out. And I bought her contract for $200,000, which was a lot of money then. Uh, to sign a normal rock group, okay, that you were interested in, it would have required ten thousand, fifteen thousand dollars. So, to commit to two hundred thousand was quite a commitment. But I nervously did that, and as they say, the rest is history. Did you get much resistance because, you know, Columbia when you took over? was not necessarily so famous for rock and roll or, or things like that. It was quite traditional at the time. It seems almost unfathomable now. Did you get resistance as you were moving things into oh, different I genres? It. I was head of the company, titularly. Um, I was looked on with some skepticism because I was a lawyer, and I never claimed to know music, read music, play music. Um, but in very short order, literally, when I look back, in a matter of weeks, I signed Big Brother and the Holding Company with Janice Joplin, The Electric Flag with Mike Bloomfield on guitar and Buddy Miles on drums, and Blood, Sweat, and Tears, whom I just happened to audition at the Village Gate down in the Village. and. You know, they blew me away with Al Cooper and the horns and the combination of fusing 
rock with jazz and blues overtones. Mm. Yeah, they they were fantastic. And, and and I mean, so also around the time for the Monterey Pop Festival, w- when did you sign Simon and Garfunkel? Or I never signed the, Simon they already and Garfunkel. On the label? Simon and Garfunkel, I think, was signed by a young A&R man named Tom Wilson. And as I took over their first record, Sounds of Silence, was, what would you call it, showing signs of life. But it took Tom to electrify it and to um, um, change the original acoustic folk performance of it so that it became a hit record. And, but and uh, I worked with them from the beginning of their career. Uh, and um, Bridge you know, Over Troubled Water, it seems like you played a pretty big role in, in pushing I that did, to radio. I did, I'm proud to say. And I share that with Paul every time we get together. I share <laughs> that with Artie every time he and I get together. That when they played me, the album, Bridge Over Troubled Water, I vividly remember sitting in the studio with them and Roy Halley, their engineer producer, and listening, and I knew that they were thinking I was going to come up with Cecilia as the first single. It was obvious, it was up-tempo, it was catchy, it was melodic, and I thought about it. I didn't try to be... uh, just unpredictable and I felt you know you can't in life always give a formulaic response you've got to know when you can deviate from the norm when something is so unique so special here this was a a ballad b it was I think over five minutes in length at a time that top 40 stations were only playing records if they were under three and a half minutes, preferably three minutes. Um, But Sail On Silver Girl, I mean, it was so overpowering, the uniqueness. And I just remember sitting there with them and saying, I think we should go for a home run. Mm. I think it's going to be a problem. There'll be resistance, but the stakes are so high because if this breaks, you go up to the top. You're right up there with the Beatles, the Rolling Rolling Stones. um, And they never forgot it, and I've never forgotten it. So I say that proudly. Well, yeah, I mean, it's literally one of the best songs ever written and also the recording their recording is very special yes it's not you know it's not just the song and countless cover versions as well and there's something to that recording that's just so timeless and and special but so that was a a time of much kind of upheaval in the you know both culturally and in in the music industry and everything and and was there um it seems like you had some quite amusing and interesting um, interactions with Miles Davis, who had obviously seen a lot of uh, success and, you know, was a genius already at at that point. But what was the nature of those? Well, Miles Davis was not discovered by me, obviously. He was um, a giant of a creative figure. He was revered by diehard music critics, fans for his jazz albums. And um, I remember he came to my office pretty soon after Blood, Sweat, and Tears and Chicago, the group Chicago, had broken, and they were a horn group. And he was very upset, um, using profanity, okay? <laughs> and saying you're signing these fucking long-haired white youth groups. They're stealing my riffs. They're selling millions, and I sell 
75,000 to 125,000 albums. Why is that? And I said, you know, I'm going to try to give you a common sense answer. I said, Miles, you're playing the village gate before a few hundred people a night. I'll commit to you. If you go out there and if you play, I had just signed Santana, the Mahavishnu Orchestra, Laura Nero. I said, I'll get them to list you a special guest star. I'll call Bill Graham for all the Fillmore's, the college play days. I said, if you go out with very respectable artists as special guest star, and you play a substantial number of the dates, all I know is that it will affect you. All I know is that you will probably, for the first time, listen to the contemporary music that is, quote, selling. And I don't know what specifically, but I just know that you will get it and that there could be an awakening. He said, you got it. And I did it, and he did it. And then he recorded Bitches Brew, which just sold a few million copies. <laughs> so uh, he and I got along famously. They were after him when he was getting his platinum album and we were taking pictures, I think, at the Fillmore, Fillmore, I believe. He said, I, I want to buy your outfit. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I don't want you to wear your khaki pants and your sport jacket. I want to pick out what you wear. If we're taking a picture and you're presenting me with this album, which you should, <coughs> pardon me, and we should, I want to buy what you wear. I said, well, if it's not outlandish, of course I'll wear it. Yeah. And he bought me the outfit that appeared on the cover of, um, at the time, Cashbox was a trade magazine. Um, and so that uh, was very special. Yeah, really special. Uh, and there have been so many moments. Uh, I mean, the list of artists is, is, is endless. Um, but but some ones in the um, you know late sixties early seventies um, that you discovered you know do you have any favourites among among those? I mean it's quite difficult for you to to pick out because we're talking about big names here. Well, late sixties. Well, well, certainly. I mean, it's not a matter of it being favourites. I mean, it was. Mind-boggling. I mean, never could I have imagined, I mean, that these artists, Santana, Joplin, Electric Flag, Aerosmith, um, turning to R&B with Gamble and Huff and starting a label, because Columbia never really had a successful R&B artist. They had signed Aretha Franklin, um, but um, yeah, the, the, they the had never had a hit record with her. They didn't know what kind of music it was to break. She had a break later on Atlantic with Jerry Wexler. So that um, I have memorable memories with each of them. Sonny Bruce Springsteen, Billy Joel, uh, Earth, Wind & Fire, in terms of Philadelphia International uh, and Gamble and Huff, how did that relationship start? Because I think those are some of the best records ever made. Well, when I took over, they had no R&B success, but they did have an R&B promotion staff, and um, they were saying, we're not getting the right product, and the A&R people were saying, it's a bad promotion staff, they're not promoting the records properly. I had to evaluate both sides of the argument, and I came down that it was not the right music. And 
you know, you can't just go out there. I was not about to go out there to try to find a great R&B performer. So Gamble and Huff, Kenny Gamble, Leon Huff, great songwriters, producers, uh, were looking to start a label called Philadelphia International Records. And I financed it. And that was the first label deal I ever made. And they delivered. I had nothing to do with the creativity there. I had nothing to do with the signing or their music. But they delivered. Um, Backstabber, they delivered Teddy Pendergrass uh, with Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. they delivered me and Mrs. Jones by Billy Paul so that we were on fire it's with the right music and they exploded. I mean, it, it just seems that throughout the decades you really just had your ear to the ground but in a multitude of different genres because, you know, Philadelphia International and that style of, you know, Philly soul music, which is incredible on the one hand, but at the same time you're signing a band like Aerosmith of a totally different sound. W- what was it that spoke to you about Aerosmith and, and how did you discover them? Well, they just played. I mean, I, I was tipped to them. I think it was Max's Kansas City. Um, certainly a place like that. I saw them do a gig. There was a similarity between Steve Tyler and Mick Jagger but I didn't think it made them less individual. I just thought that he had the same star quotient or similar star quotient. Um, and of course he's memorialized that, hasn't he? When he, he said, and then he, in one of his songs, he sat down with Clive, old Clive Davis and he said, I'm gonna make you a star just the way you are. And indeed, um, they were great. They were unique. You look for the uniqueness. You look for the special. And here, it was a, a real revolution. I mm. mean, artists left and right. I mean, earth, wind, and fire. Um, special. Where, where and, uh, you know, when, when did you come across... Um, Earth, Wind & Fire, because um, we've had the honor of having them Well, I came across Earth, Wind & Fire totally unknowingly. I was going to see um, the artist that was the Love & Spoonful um, and uh, just in concert. I just went to a concert to enjoy it, and the opening act happened to be this group, Earth, Wind & Fire. (laughs) And... I listened, I watched them, and I said, wow, I mean, they were great. So after the show was over, I asked to meet with their manager, Bob Cavallo, Joe Ruffalo, and um, they were under contract to Warner Brothers. Um, They had had one, maybe two albums out. They were unhappy with the relationship, and I said, well, I just saw you in person. Um, Let me familiarize myself with your work, but you can't, I can't publicly audition you because you're under contract to another company. If word got out that we were talking, you will never get a release. So I have to see you. Let's go into some recording studio somewhere and with Maurice White and Verdeen. Uh, I said, let me um, let me hear your music that you want to do, and that you feel is not being paid attention to. And so we did just that, and I was blown away. Um, so I said, look. I got to leave it to you. How do you get out of your contract? And because if we were fighting, you know, that was my big rival, the Warner Group, uh, when I was head of Columbia. Mm. They said, leave it to us. And sure enough, they got out of their contract. I signed them. And I remember saying, well, 
How am I going to prepare the Columbia promotion, radio, and selling and marketing staff? So as a convention, we had a convention once a year where I would showcase new artists that I had signed. And I said, and this year we were going, we're talking now the year 1972, we were going to go to London, first time outside the United States. And they were a big group, but a big in size. I said, I can't translate, I can't play your music, they'll never get it. You've got to perform live. And so I flew them to London. And they blew everybody away. And uh, that the depth of that relationship, um, they never forgot it, forget it. If I am being honored by a charity or getting a major award, they're the first ones that will either respond or call me, can we appear in your honor? We'll never forget what you did. And uh, been a very special relationship, which is so gratifying mm. after all these years. It's more than, really more than uh, 50, about 50 years ago. Wow, yeah, well, they said, uh, Verdine, when he came on this podcast, when we were speaking before we commenced recording, he said um, something like, uh, we're going to the Clive Davis Grammy party. Um, and, uh, you know, you obviously know it. It's the, it's the best Grammy party. And, uh, and then he spoke very, very fondly of you indeed. And you can see from the amount that you are, are, are together um, that they really, uh, yes. they really value that. And they, they're one of the, the greats of, of all time. As we're in New York, it would be amiss of me to simply gloss over the fact that you played a very important role in the discovery of um, both Bruce Springsteen and Billy Joel, um, two artists very closely associated with this city. Um, wh when, when you discovered e each of them, w were you aware that you were discovering some of the you know, most important recording artists of, of all time? Did you think they had that kind of potential? You know, when I was signing artists, I never thought of the geography. Um, it's only in looking back because I was never a boutique label. I mean, I just got involved with artists. They could be pure pop. Critics hated Barry Manilow. They hated Kenny G, okay? They didn't like pop hits. They didn't like pop artists. Um, but we really had if I might say so, a hip side to us, very hip in New York. When I look back, we had the com the only comedy album that si Saturday Night Live had. We had the Monty Python albums, the Lily Tomlin album. And then, of course, it was Patti Smith and uh, Stiff records with Biggie Pop. I thought I was getting Elvis Costello. Somehow that didn't come with the package, but it was for a time a part of that. But when you look back, yes, we had Manilow and the Bay City Rollers somehow from England. And, um, but we, we certainly had edgy, unique artists. Springsteen, Billy, um, it was very unique. Mm. Very, very unique. Um, and and you, you touched on something about critics there, because you've been involved with artists who, you know, let's say are darl critics, darlings, like, you know, Jill Scott Heron, um, or um, on the other hand, you get people who are given a rough time despite the fact so many people love their music. Um, do you care about what critics say at all? You know, you care at the time. Um, it doesn't dissuade me. Um, look, even Whitney Houston from the very beginning, I mean, the fact that she didn't write any of her own material, um, she had some mixed reaction. Um, never as a vocalist, but the album itself. She came to me one day and she said, you know, clearly critics only have respect if you write your own 
material, and everybody's trying to get me to collaborate with them. And should I write? Madonna's now co-writing. Janet Jackson is co-writing. Should I write? I said, look, I will never say you shouldn't because you've never tried, and I don't want to prejudge. You love music. You listen to music day and night. Um, but just know that the bar is up there for your material. Just know, can you write The Greatest Love of All? Can you write Saving All My Love for You? Um, so people want to collaborate with you because you're selling 25 million albums a crack, and they would love to get that copyright royalty. Um, but it's like an actor or an actress. They could be great, but if they don't have a good script, it's wasted. You've got to have a great script. You've got to have a great material for Betty Davis, Meryl Streep, Katherine Hepburn to emerge, you know, as stars. Um, she never raised that subject uh, <laughs> again. And and with with Whitney Houston, you know, your relationship with her. You spoke about how great your friendship and collaboration was with and and is with Earth, Wind, and Fire. But Whitney Houston was such a special relationship to you, right? And and um, and you know, it, is that one of the, the artists that really, you know, means the most to you, kind of sentimentally? Um. Well, when you say means the most, I mean, certainly because of a premature tragic death, be, certainly because of the lethal power of drugs befelling her way prematurely, um, it involves emotion, thwarted emotion, that her full potential could never be reached on a permanent basis. Um, very proud of what she did, very proud of what we did, very proud of our collaboration. Um, so I co-produced the movie on her life that yes, is accurate and tells her story. Uh, that's on Netflix as well. I Want to Dance with Somebody is the title. Um, so that was, you know, that involves a lot of emotion um, in effect going through that and seeing someone you care for have a permanent problem uh, and yet be so proud of what she attained. Yeah, her records really, you know, obviously stand the, the test of time. Um, during the eight, 80s, when some of those huge hits were, were coming out, what, what was that artistic uh, process like? Because you were so kind of pivotal and important in, in the finding songs. The artistic process is that I would look for material. That was my job. And I held, I had an A&R staff that would send me songs. I had music publishers. Obviously, they all wanted to be on Whitney's album. Um, and so I would spend, if you would, a year going over material and sort of narrowing it down to about 15 or 16 songs. And then she and I, there was never, ever, ever anyone else at the meeting that she and I would have. Um, we would sit together and narrow down the 15 or 16 songs to either 10, 11, whatever number the album uh, had. There was only one song, only once, and it's in the movie, that I played to her because somehow, despite different backgrounds, lives, everything, experiences, we were in sync. If you ever read a Rolling Stone interview, she was amazed, and I was amazed. It's not that we fought. We never fought. Um, there was one song, Why Does It Hurt So Bad, that Babyface wrote, that when I played it for her, that... She said, you know, I'm listening to the lyric 
and it's not me. I said, okay, no problem. First time this happened, I have no interest. I never had any interest, economic royalty. We never took a producer's royalty. Um, she said, if a man rejects me, betrays me, uh, or wants to break up, I would not hurt. I mean, I would realize my religion tells me he's not for me. I have enough self-confidence, self-worth that I would move on uh, and say, oh, if I'm not for you, that's a good lesson to learn before we formalize anything. And I, I would not be hurt. And I remember saying to her, you've had a very privileged life. I've got to tell you, this song has a, a very, very universal feeling. I said, because if you're in, if one is in a monogamous relationship with another person and you're then rejected or betrayed, you hurt. Yeah. You hurt and you hurt bad. She says, not me. So, good. I said, we won't record it. We moved on. I took that demo from Babyface, Face Recall, I put it in the top right-hand drawer right next to me. I called him up because I had told him I'd be playing it for her. I said, look, she's not ready to record. I told him exactly the conversation. I said, but please don't give it to another artist. Let me keep it. And the stakes with her, you could do that because she sold so many records. And so it was years later when she couldn't take any more betrayals by Bobby Brown. And she called me up one day. She said, let's have lunch, which is the way we usually uh, went over material. So she comes to the office, she would have her hamburger, okay? And um, she said, I'm just told Bobby I want to get it divorce. I just can't take it anymore. The betrayal, the infidelity, it's just too much. And it was just then, true story, word for word. She said, remember that song years ago that I didn't feel? Could you, did you, whatever happened to it? I said, whatever happened to it? And I opened the right-hand drawer. I said, here it is. I never, I got Face's consent that he would never show it to another artist. She says, I've got to hear that song. And I, do you have the lyric? I said, of course I have the lyric. So I gave her the lyric. I put on the record. She listens to it. She says, I'm ready. I get it. I understand it now. I'm hurting. I'm hurting real bad. And she recorded, why does it hurt so bad? It's in the film that way. What an amazing story. Unbelievable. Well, I mean, she's such a good singer that, you know, I would guess, is she really feeling those lyrics inside? But, I mean, after that, you know that it's more than just having that incredible voice. It's also, you know, she's emotional. Yeah. Um, that's, that's incredible. And, and so was that a song that came out during the 90s? Yes, it came out towards the end of the 90s. I think in the, um, right after the string of movie albums, in that first uh, My Love Is Your Love album, I mm. believe it's on that album. Because during the 90s as well, you moved into all sorts of different kind of offshoots, it, it, it seems, and, and one of those was um, you had a working relationship with P. Diddy, um, or Puff Daddy, as he was known then, um, and, uh, and with Bad Bad Boy Records. How did that start? And, um, you know, when I was reading in preparation for this, um, I saw a quote attributed to you saying, like, I don't really understand rap music, but on the contrary, it seems like you did understand it. Was that just a kind of media exaggeration or something? 
I don't necessarily to say that I didn't understand it. What I said was, I'm feeling my way over the years with creativity. And it's on, I've been involved with rock, I've been involved with pop, I've been involved with R&B, but hip hop, I was not going I was not living a life on the streets that I would sign the next great hip hop artist. And so I knew that R&B was changing. Um, and that's why I did a label deal first with uh, LaFace Records, with uh, L.A. Reid and Babyface. And, you know, while I was doing still successfully, says he proudly and modestly, and Dale Warwick and Aretha Franklin and, 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 and Whitney, um, they were doing Usher, they were doing Outkast, they were doing uh, TLC. Um, Pink, and yet as well. they had Pink, so that it was quite formidable taking the two of us together. But when I got a call to, when I meet with this unknown man to me named Sean Puffy Combs, who had been at Uptown Records with Andre Harrell and they had had a big falling out. And I was just asked by his accountant, um, would I take a meeting? And I took a meeting with Puffy and he articulated that there will be a hip hop revolution and that top 40 would have to expand to include hip-hop. It was new to me, but you learn it pays to be open and not be closed-minded uh, to things. And he did articulate, and I it resonated with me. And I said to him, well, what you, it sounds good, but Give me an example. You gotta play some music for me. I can't uh, just do it on the basis of a good verbal exchange. And he came back the next week with Craig Mack's Flavor in Your Ear and with four cuts from Biggie, <laughs> um, whom I had never heard of, okay? Um, and I was knocked out and I agreed to finance Bad Boy Records, and uh, we did market, promote, sell, change top 40. We had hits, every one of his orders, total 112, uh, um, just back to back, him, Biggie, of course, Mace. Um, so the combination that Arista had you know, with Aretha and Whitney and Dion, along with LaFace, with the artist I mentioned, yeah. and now with Biggie and Puffy, etc. And with Arista Country as well. I mean, it's always I mean, too we much became explosively among the two or three top labels in the world. And um, I, th I, you know, with with that kind of diversity of, of material you know that's one way of illustrating the impact that you've had but another one I think almost like the best in terms of you know just that kind of magic touch is that Santana record Supernatural well that you're coming to the year 2000 yeah Superna Supernatural has its own great story I had not I had signed when I was head of Columbia Santana I think it was 1969 or 1970. And um, we had hits. Oh, you Black Magic Woman, Evil Ways. He went multi-platinum. But then when I was ceremonious, unceremoniously let go by Columbia and I started Arista, 
I didn't have any contact with Carlos, and he had other influences, Miles Davis, John Coltrane, so he started making different kinds of records that were not radio-friendly. And so you're talking now about a good 25 years later, at least, 98, 1998, I get a call from his manager, Carlos is playing Radio City Music Hall. You guys haven't seen each other in 20 some odd years. Would you come see him? And of course, emotionally, nostalgically, I said, of course, I'd love to see Carlos. And I did go. And there he was, still the guitar virtuoso, playing with a fairly contemporary band. Um, you know, seeing the expanding Hispanic population of all ages in Radio City. I agreed to meet with him, and we met, and he said, I got one question, and I'll give you the background. I have kids, and they don't hear me on the radio in their lifetime. And they say, why aren't you on the radio? And so I went to my advisor, I forget what he called his spiritual advisor, who said to him, well, who did you have hits with when you had hits? And he mentioned my name. And that's, he said, why I called you. I was told to call you. So would you be interested in signing me? And word for word, I said, Carlos, I'll sign you on this formula blueprint structure. You give me half the album, give me six songs that I will come up with that I think will be within your artistic creative range. I would never force you to do something that would be offensive to your integrity as an artist, but there would be special songs, some of which hopefully will be hits. And you take the rest of the album, whatever you want to do. Obviously, it should have your flavor, your creativity. And that was what we agreed to. That was the architectural blueprint. And I went out, and with my A&R staff, came up with Smooth, Maria Maria, I was working with Whitecliffe at the time with My mm -hmm. Love Is Your Love album. He asked me, what else are you doing? I said, Santana. He came back two weeks later with Maria Maria. <laughs> um, I was working with Matt Soletic, the producer of Matchbox 20, who said that Rob Thomas would like to write music for other artists, never thinking he'd be part of it outside of Matchbox 20. Pete Gambach came in with the track for Smooth. We loved it. We sent it to Rob Thomas. He wrote the rest of Smooth on top of that. If I read an article, which I did, that Dave Matthews admired Carlos, I immediately called Dave Matthews. I was working with Lauren Hill on A Rose Is Still a Rose for Aretha Franklin. And so that ended with an exchange. So that's what happened with Supernatural. We won eight Grammys. I co-produced it with Carlos. It's one of the great satisfactions. Yeah, because it's uh, an artist who was just so big. Oh, back it was then. told that it was looked on at Arister as Davis's folly. Yeah, and um, great. I mean, it completely reinvigorated his career, but also proved, you know, again that that there's this this ear that you've got for, for things and, and also for relationships that's um, really unique. Mm -hmm. Now, there are so, so many people that you've worked with, it's, it's, it's literally impossible to cover all of them. And I, I think there are some music fans out there who would really like to know um, a couple of things about the here and now. Um, do you still listen to top 40 radio like all the time? I listen to the big hits, yes. I, I watch the videos, I listen to them. Um, music has changed radically. Um, so it is getting more difficult to try to, I mean, I did do that, always listen to the top genre to feel that 
when am I going to go over the hill and to keep my ears uh, fresh? Um, but it, it's changed now. You worry where the next Dylan or Springsteen is coming from. You wonder where the next Aretha um, or Whitney is coming from. You read the lyrics to Scissor Records or Lotto Records or... Um, they're different, full of profanity, um, not based on, and yet it's good. Sis has got a great voice. It's not that I don't admire it, but it's different. It's yeah. I mean, and and in terms of the the industry, with, I mean, people are talking about crazy stuff now. Um, how how do you feel about uh, artificial intelligence and and you know that? the role of the writer and the creative um, ultimately being being replaced because people who aren't involved in the music industry, I've heard them say, oh, what does it matter if I like the song? You say, what are they saying? They, they say, what does it matter if I don't like the song? If I like the song, even if a computer's made the whole track, there's no human element at all. Uh, it's not how I feel. I, s I, I think there's something magic that comes from the human soul with uh, music. But what's your take on artificial intelligence? You know, I know it's a potential huge problem. Um, and, and I haven't figured out the ending. Um, I have great respect for the, exactly what you said, the uniqueness of the human soul. Um, and I don't know where it's going to end. I'm not... Um, I don't have a conviction of knowing what the ending is going to be. It's a, it clearly is a big issue, mm. uh, a big, somewhat threatening issue. Mm. Well, I guess the movie industry, uh, uh, you know, they're just just as worried, and the music industry has been through this before. And and do you, when you're listening to music at the moment, do you listen to music on streaming services, or do you listen to records and CDs and stuff still? I. I have a staff, they get it for me and I listen, you know. Um, I make tight, I, I make the list of what I want to hear mm. and then they play it for me, and either at home or my office or wherever we are. And, and, when, and when you're making that list, is that based on like the papers or on? It often is based on hearing new songs that are broken through and I want to hear what they're all about. Artists, I want to see what they're all about. Um, hmm. It's still fun. Last night, what's it, last night, two nights ago, I was at, uh, totally different from what you're saying, but I was at a restaurant in New York and who comes in but my old friend Rod Stewart and we had caused, I didn't discover him, I didn't have all those great rockets, but I was there when he worked with Richard Perry on the Great American Songbook first album. And I listened and I loved the idea. I had a different idea for arrangements, tempo, but I loved the idea from a marketing point of view. And we aligned, and I got involved with the tracks and hired both Richard Perry, Phil Ramone, others. And the five albums we did where music had totally changed, but those five albums sold 26 million copies mm -hmm. worldwide. So two nights ago, I'm feeling, I'm at a table, there were six of us, okay? And all of a sudden, you know, turning to my right, but I feel next to my face, another face uncharacteristically <laughs> close, and I turn to my left, and it's Rod. We hadn't seen each other in about a year or two, but he was coming to the next table at this restaurant, and we chatted, and he said, I've just done, I'm doing a swing album. Now here, this is not the era for swing, it's not the age of swing, with Jules Holland. Oh yeah, that's And that's I would love you to listen and give me the critique. 
So I brought it home, and I haven't, I will be listening tonight uh, to see if uh, history can repeat itself with something borrowing from the past can have a fresh sound and be appealing. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you'll like it because obviously Jules Holland <laughs> is, uh, Jules Holland's fantastic. So uh, he's, he's a fantastic musician. Um, but, uh, well, tell me what, because I, d- I know the name, but I so don't... So Jules, Jules Holland in the UK is like, um, he presents a, sh- a show on Radio, not Radio 2, on Channel 2, BBC 2, and it's called Late Night with Jules Holland, and it's kind of, it's almost the only late night musical show that we've got, and he's a fabulous piano player, um, and he's just really passionate, uh, well, somewhat similar to yourself in the sense that he'll have artists from lots of different genres, um, and he'll collaborate with them. So it's it's I think it's definitely like an artistic project that Rod Stewart's doing. Well, I'm doing look forward to hearing it. So that. I reckon I reckon you'll like it, particularly with your role in the American Songbook, which got turned down by three labels apparently before. Well, you said they yes only to told it. me I didn't even know. Yeah. You know, I don't. You knew what you were doing. Didn't I you? don't follow other labels' uh, interests, so that if I'm the only one, that's okay. Well, I don't care. Well, Clive, I, I can't tell you again how much of an honour it's been to talk to you. Thank you for giving me your time and uh yeah all everybody listening to this should watch the netflix documentary and read your book and the details of those will be in the show notes so thank you so much clive okay i'm going to end it only because before we met you said you were going to ask me about who my favorite songs who are my favorite artists and who are my favorite which are my favorite songs so when it comes to artists, since I prepared thinking about it, we're not going to have a, any, any extended conversation about it. But I do want to respond some. because I gave it thought. Okay, and, yes. Um, and we're not going to pick any artists from any of the labels or anything because that would be slanting it. So forget any artist I ever worked with is not a part of it. But... Um, I would say among my favorite artists um, would be Frank Sinatra, Stevie Wonder, Lena Horne, um, the Mamas and the Papas, um, the Beatles, um, the BGs uh, are examples of artists that I listen to among, of course, the artists that I signed. Simon and Garfunkel, I can go on and on. But, and as far as songs are concerned, I would, with, without that same limitation, uh, sometimes influenced by personal considerations, um, among my favorite songs ever would be Bridge Over Trouble Water, would be uh, The Greatest Love of All. Um, and then for uh, Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me, also mm-hmm. Elton John is one of my favorite artists. Um, Blinded by the Light, because it's accompanied by a great story when I turned Bruce's first album back to him and said, I'm, I need two or three favorite, two or three radio-friendly songs, because although I love it and it's unique, and he didn't challenge me as artists might in that sensitive situation. And he went to the beach and the park and he came back with Blinded by the Light and Spirit in the Night. And he told me, which he still tells me to this day, I never would have written either of those two songs if it weren't for you. So just the way you are, um, Blowing in the Wind was a signal, wonderful, incredible Bob Dylan song that affected pop music forever by you can not just entertain but educate inform challenge at the same time so 
I enjoyed today. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you very much. I look Clyde. forward to your show.